Episode 78, Church History Part 34. Toward the end of the First Great Awakening, discussed in Episode 77, the American Revolutionary War, or U.S. War of Independence, happened between 1775 and 1783. It arose from growing tensions between the residents of Great Britain's 13 North American colonies and the colonial government, which represented the British crown. The 13 New England colonies rejected the imperial rule, but they couldn't have stolen the land in the first place without the help from their country, who they're rejecting now. The colonizers are far away from home, and they want control. They have their religions and plenty of slaves to build and make what they want. Nevertheless, with the assistance of France, the colonizers in the American colonies were able to defeat their own people, the British, to achieve independence and form the United States of America. History.com states, During the American Revolution, thousands of black Americans jumped into the war on both sides of the conflict. But unlike their white counterparts, they weren't just fighting for independence or to maintain British control. In a time when the vast majority of African Americans lived in bondage, their forced labor fueling the economy of the fledging nation, most took up arms, hoping to be freed from the literal shackles of chattel slavery. In fact, when enslaved people had a choice in the matter, according to historian Edward Ayers of the American Revolution Museum in Yorktown, Virginia, they signed on with whichever side seemed most likely to grant them personal freedom. Historians estimate that between 5,000 and 8,000 African descendant people participated in the revolution on the American colonist side and an upward of 20,000 to 50,000 slaves served the British crown. Deep sigh. And we know this war did not end slavery. So after the war, there's a massive new expansion of the country, the Great Push Westward. And this period sees a number of new developments happening, especially on the religious front. And many of them have apocalyptic overtones to them. In fact, this is the period that gives rise to what is known as the Second Great Awakening. Like the first, it's a period of revival, but it's being put forward as a sense of the great expansion of the country as well. This is per pbs.org frontline. The Second Great Awakening occurs from the Protestant religious revivals in the United States from about 1795 to 1835. During this revival, meetings were held in small towns and large cities throughout the country and the unique frontier institution known as the Camp Meetings began. Many churches experienced a great increase in membership, particularly among the Methodist and the Baptist churches. The Second Great Awakening made soul winning the primary function of ministry and stimulated several moral and philanthropic reforms, including temperance and the emancipation of women. It was generally considered less emotional than the Great Awakening of the early 18th century. The second wave of evangelical revivalism led to the founding of numerous colleges and seminaries and to the organization of mission societies across the country per Britannica.com. 
Religion spread through revivals and emotional preaching, and hundreds of people were converted to the movement. Different denominations were a part of the Second Great Awakening, but the revival meetings were pretty much the same. The Great Awakening revival inspired Puritan Reverend Eliezer Willock. He founded the Moores Charity School in 1754. Today is known as Dartmouth College. Wheelock graduated from Yale University. Yes, the one with all the slave owners on staff. Was himself a longtime slave owner. He studied at Yale until he was licensed to preach as a congregational minister. Anglican Reverend Samuel Johnson, he helped found King's College in 1754, renamed as Columbia University. Baptist ministers, Reverend James Manning, Reverend Isaac Backus, and Reverend Samuel Stillman helped found the College of Rhode Island in 1764, renamed Brown University. The Reverend James Manning had a personal slave and was a minister of the First Baptist Church of America. The Southern Baptist was formed when the North and the South Baptists split. The Southern Baptists believed slavery was justified in the Bible, and they taught their slaves to accept their place in life and obey and submit to their owner. The Washington Post stated that all four founding faculty members of the Southern Baptists owned slaves. And if you wondered why the stench of racism and evil reeks from an organization, Check its history. The Methodist and Baptist denominations grew rapidly in the West. The denominations that encouraged the revivals were based on an interpretation of man's spiritual equality before God, which led them to recruit members and preachers from a wide range of classes and all races. Baptist and Methodist revivals were successful in some parts of Tidewater South, where an increasing number of common planters and plain folk and slaves were converted. Per Jim Holt in Imagining the End, the Apocalypse in American Popular Culture, many black Baptist ministers were birthed. KingdomPreppers.org states, It was in this period that church planting expanded across the Western American frontier with Baptists leading the way. In fact, the first generation of black leaders or ministers came out of the revival movement. The first black Baptist churches in South Carolina and Georgia were built during the height of the revolution. And while the British still occupied Charleston and Savannah, black Baptists were springing up in the hundreds. Sensational numbers would come after the Civil War and emancipation. During the Second Great Awakening, leaders of new Christian denominations also emerged, like the Mormons, Adventists, Jehovah Witnesses, and the Pentecostal movement. Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism and the Latter-day Saint movement, had up to 40 wives, allegedly. He was moved in the Methodist revivals and began attending Methodist meetings until they found out he was a necromancy, which is a wizard or magician. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, was a Freemason. Per the LDS Church itself, in its official video, states, Joseph Smith's brother, Hiram, was also a Mason 
and a member of a lodge in New York. And their father, Joseph Smith Sr., was known to be a master mason in New York as early as 1818. While prophet and president of the church, Joseph joined the Masonic Lodge in Illinois, Nauvoo, Illinois, on March the 15th, 1842, rising to the level of master mason just a day later under the recognized authority of the Grand Master of Illinois. Masonry wasn't new to the thousands of Latter-day Saints, converts already living in and around Nauvoo at that time. Although new to the faith, some members of the church, even those within the ranks of church leadership, were already Masons. Eventually, over 1,500 members of the church were listed as Freemasons in Nauvoo, Illinois alone, more than all the rest of Illinois. In towns across early America, many elected officials were Masons, like President George Washington, Benjamin Franklin, and many signers of the Declaration of Independence were also Masons. Historians note that Joseph Smith, Brigham Young, and Mormons were not abolitionists. Some excerpts in Norman's Negro Doctrine and Historical Overview states, First, Joseph Smith believed the course of abolitionism was calculated to set loose upon the world a community of people who might pre-adventure overrun our country and violate the most sacred principles of human society, chastity, and virtue. What? Second, any evil attending slavery should have been apparent to the men of piety of the South who had raised no objections to the institution. Third, the prophet did not believe that the people of the North have any more right to say that the South shall not hold slaves than the South have to say the North shall. The signing of petitions in the North was nothing more than an array of influence and a declaration of hostilities against the people of the South. Fourth, the sons of Canaan or Ham, whom Joseph Smith identified with the Negro, were cursed with servitude by a decree of Jehovah. And that curse was not yet taken off the sons of Canaan, neither will be until it is affected by a great power as caused it to come. And those who are determined to pursue a course which shows an opposition against the designs of the Lord will learn that God can do his work without the aid of those who are not dictated by his counsel. What? He called us the descendants of Ham, but we are descendants of Shem. This is foul. Fifth. There were several other biblical precedents for slavery in the histories of Abraham, Leviticus, Ephesians, Timothy. In concluding this article, the prophet partially withdrew his previous stance on proselytizing slaves. He says, it would be much better and more prudent not to preach to all the slaves until after their masters are converted. What? Brigham Young, the second president of the Church of Latter-day Saints supported slavery and its expansion into Utah and led the efforts to legalize and regulate slavery in the 1852 Act in relation to service based on his beliefs on slavery per the Utah Legislative Assembly in 1852. He wanted to codify a bill that per the Bible, African slaves served their masters in perpetuity. The devil is a liar. Young said in an 1852 speech, Inasmuch as we believe in the Bible, we must believe in slavery. This colored race has been subjected to severe curses, which they have brought upon themselves. 
Seven years later in 1859, Young stated in an interview with the New York Tribune that he considered slavery as a divine institution and not to be abolished. Race and the Making of the Mormon People by Max Perry Mueller states, Whatever you want to say about the origins of the Book of Mormon, it fits its time period really well. It's very American. It tells a story of racial schisms and how it came to be, dividing the world into a hierarchy of races. And that's a standard American story, especially the idea that people born to a so-called darker skin race could not be redeemed. Another significant figure of the Second Great Awakening was a farmer from New York named William Miller. He was a Baptist preacher that started preaching at camp meetings. He preached the book of Revelations and the prophecies of Daniel. William Miller proclaimed the second coming of Christ would occur at a certain time. He called the second coming the Advent. His religion was known as Millerism and Adventist. PBS.org Frontline states, in fact, that's what William Miller's movement came to be known as, the Adventist movement. And the Advent or the Second Coming of Christ will occur between 1843 and 1844. And then, in a significant twist in the interpretation of the book of Revelations, he says that's when the thousand years, the millennium, will commence. So he places the events in the book of Revelation and all of that expectation as a coming event after the return of Christ. This new interpretation where all of the events in the book of Revelation begin to occur only after Christ returns. And the millennium, the thousand year reign, is a reign on earth after the return of Christ. That kind of interpretation comes to be known as premillennialism, And it's one of the important new developments in American religious history. And of course, it still survives today and is very influential. Soon, Millerism became a national campaign with two papers or publications circulating called Signs of the Times and the Midnight Cry. Thousands of people believed the Advent message of William Miller. And when the date came and went, the second event was now being called the Great Disappointment. KeenanPreppers.org states, but alas, the prophesied time came and went, and Miller was forced to admit his error. Though he left the movement he had started, all was not lost. One of Miller's followers, Simon Snow, proposed a new date for the second coming, October the 22nd, 1844, based on an interpretive tweak. This was called the Second Advent or the Great Anticipation, okay? When the Messiah did not return on the new date, the failed event was renamed the Great Disappointment. Despite the second event not coming to pass, William Miller made his mark by introducing new doctrines to the Christian movement, doctrines that were largely adopted by his followers, who convened the next year at the Mutual Conference of Adventists to hash out problematic details in his overall theology. This led to the formation of the Evangelical Adventists, which was the foundation on which all modern Adventist churches were established. Among those who attended the conference were Joseph Bates, a revivalist minister, and James White and his wife, Ellen White, who learned from Bates that the Seventh-day Sabbath was still valid according to scripture. 
After borrowing many of Miller's teachings and drawing many conclusions that he first drew, the largest proponent of Advent believers adopted the seventh day as their day of worship and, continuing in the spirit of William Miller, formed the Seventh-day Adventist Church in 1863 with Ellen White as its prophet. Charles White, Ellen's grandson, states, Ellen White wrote over a 100,000 pages by hand, 25 million words, mostly with a quill pen. She wrote more books in more languages, circulated further than any other woman in history. But ex-Adventist Walter T. Ray, a former pastor and author, says that between 80 to 90 percent of Ellen White's prolific writings were plagiarized. Research from his book, The White Lie, reveals that White borrowed from about 75 books of other religious authors to write her own material. Girl, you should know better than that. With many wanting to disassociate from Ellen or not claim her, a church split from the Adventist or Seventh-day Adventist occurred and another religion or church was birthed. Deuteronomy 18, 19. And it shall come to pass that whosoever would not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. But the prophet, which shall presume to speak a word in my name, which I have not commanded him to speak, or that shall speak in the name of other gods, even that prophet shall die. And if thy say in thine heart, how shall we know the word which Yah hath not spoken? When a prophet speaketh in the name of Yah, if the thing follow not, nor come to pass, that is the thing which Yah hath not spoken. But the prophet hath spoken it presumptuously. Thou shalt not be afraid of him. Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they're ravening wolves. Matthew 24 and 24. For there shall arise false Christ and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders, insomuch that, if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Revelation 16, 13. And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs come out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. Revelation 19, 19, 20. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him that sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was taken and with him the false prophet that wrought miracles before him with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image. These both were cast alive into a lake of fire burning with brimstone. As we seek truth, please seek truth with us. Please send questions or comments to info at truthwars.com or come it here. We don't claim to know everything. We just seek the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that knows everything. Let truth roar. Let truth reign. Let truth speak. And let truth set you and your entire family free. Truth roars. Truth reigns. Truth speaks. Truth sets me free. Please see a podcast disclaimer at truthwars.com.